Well, we're continuing to dive in. I'm curious to know why David was laughing while he was reading the passage. Uh, But we're, we're in the midst of looking at this letter where Paul writes instructions to the young... Oh, they've uh, glued this all together here. Just watch how coordinated I can be. Okay. Thank you. Someone with more skill, more technological skill than I have, mechanical. We're in the midst of this letter that Paul wrote to the young Pastor Timothy to say this is the kind of instructions that I want you to be giving to my church. And Paul has begun to delve into a number of topics, but for the last couple of weeks we've been exploring the topics of what instructions the Holy Spirit through Paul has given to Timothy about how to live in God's household as men and as women. And uh, in case you hadn't noticed and hadn't picked it up along the way, there are some statements here that sound rather controversial as I try to get my face out of the sun here. There, there are sections here and statements that don't quite seem to synchronize with the world we live in. And yet, we notice that, number one, Paul doesn't mind saying these things. They didn't synchronize with the culture necessarily that Paul lived in. Uh, they, he doesn't mind saying them, he doesn't mind explaining them, and what we're going to find tonight is, as Paul so often does, he finds and gives, with the Holy Spirit's guidance, a reason, a rationale for what he's thinking. And so... What we're meant to hear first and foremost is that Paul doesn't say these things in isolation. He doesn't say, hey, I've got some novel teaching for you. I've got something for you that God has never talked about before and that uh, has not been discussed among God's people and tried to be understood and lived with. And tonight we're going to see in the last few verses of this chapter, verses 13 through 15, the rationale that Paul gives. But let us look at it with this in mind. When Paul wants to give a rationale, it's always about God. Paul does not uh, appeal first and foremost to, well, let's take a survey. What do the vast majority of people think? 
When God wants to teach us through the Apostle Paul, God does not say, so, Mike, what's your opinion on this matter? I'd like to consult with you. When God teaches us through the writers of letters like this, the appeal is always back to God, and specifically to God come to us to live with us in the person of Jesus Christ. And saying, that's my rationale. And Paul does that here. If you read uh, verse 13, somebody got a, a Bible or a device there. Who's got it? Who's got it at hand? Verse 13. Don't be shy. Raise your hand. Scott Stack's wife is handing him the Bible saying, you read it, Scott. Scott, read it out. Verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 13. Okay, stop there. You, you see, it's easy to read along and, and to miss something. There's a small word, a three-letter word, at the beginning of this verse that we can't miss. And that is the word, Scott, for. Not for. Not for, F-O-R-E, like watch out, you're about to be hit by a golf ball. For. This is my reasoning, Paul says. Here's my reasoning, and to give you my reasoning, I'm going to take you all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. I'm going to take you all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in order to give my rationale. Now, let's not be mistaken in saying, oh yeah, okay, here we go. Four, and then Adam was made, created, formed by God, and then Eve was formed. Okay, so Paul is giving this as the reason only for what just came before, which on a surface reading, although John took us very deeply into all of the scriptures last week, but a passage that seems to say, you know, women, be quiet, sit down, close your mouth. Now, that's not what he's saying. And we'll get more of that tonight. But I want you to hear and to understand that when Paul uses this word for, also happens to be a three-letter word in the Greek New Testament, as Paul wrote this letter, that little three-letter word is Paul giving his reasoning for everything he said up to this point. Paul says, if you want to understand why back in chapter 1, the first few verses, I said to you, Timothy, teach the church family not to get caught up in myths and genealogies and endless speculative reasoning that only causes controversy. Okay. Anybody here ever read the book of Genesis? Okay. Do, are, any genealogies in Genesis? 
yeah, who came and then they had and they had and they had and children and grandchildren and how long they lived. There are genealogies there. Now, careful with this one. Are there myths there? Are there stories that explain there's something deeper going on than just what we see? Yes, in that sense. I don't mean they're untrue. I simply mean in the root meaning of myths. They are stories from God, true stories that help us understand the deeper meaning of the world we live in. Okay. So what's going on in Ephesus is people are taking Genesis and twisting it around and speculating about it. And that ever happened? Yeah. Speculating about Genesis and they're getting into fights. And so Paul says, here's my reason for saying to you, Timothy, in the church, I want you to instruct people, don't get up, don't get caught up in false teaching in myths and genealogies and endless speculations, don't misuse Genesis. Paul has also told us back in chapter one of this letter that Jesus came to save sinners like me. Emphasis there. If, if you start to get anxious, ah, Paul is being so hard on women, Slow down, because Paul is, first of all, earlier in the letter, hard on himself. God sent his son into the world to save sinners, and I am the number one, the worst sinner. The reason for that, as we'll see in a moment, is found in the first three chapters of Genesis. Paul has taught already in this letter that we should live as God's household with faith and a good conscience. That's rooted in the earliest story of God's making and designing and laying out this world. The early chapters of Genesis. Paul has already taught that everyone, I'm, I'm particularly attached to this one since I got to give that message, everyone everywhere should pray on behalf of everyone else, especially for governing authorities. It's rooted in Genesis. Paul has given an instruction. Now let me talk to the men. After addressing everyone, he says, now let me break this down. Let me break it down into men and to women. Men, what should you do? Nikolai's message. Pray. And pray with what kind of attitude of heart? Raising up hands to God. The same hands that could be raised in clenched fists or automatic weapons or fighting, it says, without anger, right? Without disputing, raise up hands, men, open hands, not closed fists, and pray to God. Rooted in Genesis, Paul's initial instruction to women, I'm going to paraphrase it this way, Draw attention to God and not to yourself. Rooted 
in those early chapters of Genesis. And then last week, we studied together that women, perhaps in particular wives, should not be participating in angry, unsettled, authoritarian teaching over their husbands, but they should learn, all of us together should learn, in quietude. A a better word than quiet. Quiet sounds like, you know, Stacy, don't talk in church. No. Quietude. It's an attitude more than keeping your mouth shut. Rooted in Genesis. And so tonight, although we are studying 1 Timothy chapter 2, I'm going to invite you to flip all the way back to the front pages of your Bible or scroll or whatever you need to do to get back to the first few chapters of the Bible. Which begin with... Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in, oh, don't leave me hanging up here. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, there was what? God. In the beginning, there was God. In the beginning, there weren't men, there weren't women, there weren't plants, there weren't trees. There weren't animals, there weren't fish, there weren't birds. In the beginning, there was God. If we don't get this focus, then we're going to get sidetracked. When we come up into 2 Timothy chapter 2, for example, we're going to get caught up in endless speculations, trying to track down, trying to understand Without the secure starting point, in the beginning there was God. And God made. And God said. And things began to happen. So we're going to pick up Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26, when God says, Let us. Interesting how God talks to himself like this, right? Father, Son, Holy, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. And God says, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they can rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. What is the very reason that God created humankind? To make his world an orderly place. Now, you can check yourself, how are we doing with that? <laughs> Look inside your own heart. Uh, pray Psalm 139, search me, O God, and see if there's any 
disturbed and anxious way in me. Uh, But God created humankind in order that we could be placed in his world. In a minute, we'll see that it's very specific in the garden that he prepared in order to make sure that things were done in an orderly way. See, what happens in God's household? Uh, people here have kids? Yeah, all you got to do is look when, you know, the announcements time comes up. Uh, if you have kids, or maybe you were a kid, anybody here was a kid at some point in their life? Some of you just appeared on the scene at, you know, 65? Okay. What happens if you take a room full of kids and you say everybody just do what you want whatever comes to you whatever seems good whatever you'd like to do don't don't have thought for other people don't have thought for the room for the toys for the furniture for the walls do whatever you want to do we'll all be fine how's that work pretty good huh You see, it doesn't work to say to a household, just operate in any way you want. In fact, you read Lord of the Flies, okay? You can see where it goes from there. And so God created humankind, verse 27 says, in his own image. In the image of God, he created it. He created humankind, male and female, He created them. Now, as you listen to that, what is God's view of men and of women? In his image. The whole of humankind is made in God's image. And in a specific way, male and female are made in his image. Is there any any sense of priority here? Well, males are more in God's image than females are. No. Any sense of superiority here? God created men to rule over women. You know, much as much as some of the husbands here are going, "Oh, I wish that was true." And then pretty soon you'd wish that wasn't true. It doesn't work. But what God created is women and men in his own image. And God blessed them. And he said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea. Birds in the sky. Every living creature that moves on the ground. I give you... Who's God talking to? I give you this food to eat, and I want you to order my world. Both men and women. Not an either or. God expects both women and men to be managing his world well. And then God said, I give you, both of you, men and women, every seed bearing plant on the face of the earth, every tree. 
they'll be yours for food, all the beasts of the earth, birds of the sky, creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it. I give every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw all that he made, and it was very good. Now, let's say Paul had never written this letter. What would you already know about women and men in God's earth, in God's kingdom, in God's household? Made in his image, first and foremost. They're very good. <laughs> sort of good. Very good. How are you feeling about yourself? You got self-esteem problems? Read Genesis chapter 1. Equal in value. They have a job to do. Okay, let's take, take one of those jobs. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Uh, men, how you do that by yourself? Tom, you ever given birth? Thank God. Okay. You see, they have a joint job to do, a combined work to do for God together. And God said it's very good that it be that way. Now, what's happening at the church in Ephesus? What's going on that's disturbing that order? People are getting caught up, getting caught up in the genealogies, who came first and who came second and who came third. And interestingly, Paul's going to turn that on its head in the letter. They're getting caught up in the stories. They're getting caught up in speculative thinking about it. I don't know what kind of speculations, you know, how did it happen? How long ago did it happen? All of those things, people are speculating and they're fighting and they're disturbing the church of God because they don't have the fundamental understanding that God said, I'm creating humankind in my image. In my image, I'm creating it, humankind, male and female, I'm creating them. Now, when you get into Genesis chapter 2, um, we can talk about this later, but Genesis chapter 2 tells the creation story in a different sequence. Because Genesis chapter 2 digs in and says, uh, where Genesis chapter 1 had said, you know, right, first God created everything. He created the land and the sea and the lights in the sky, the heavens and the earth. And he created all these things. And then he made plants to grow. And then he made animals. And then he made human beings. Genesis 2 turns the sequencing of the story around. Okay, because in verse 5 it says, Now, no shrub, no plant had yet appeared on the earth. No plant had yet sprung up. 
because there's two problems. The Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. Okay. There's, I want to be careful how I say this, but, but there's a problem. Okay. It's as if God, now God had all this mapped out, and God had it all planned, and God worked it according to his power. And when he said things, things happened. But this is looked at as if God's got a problem. I want to have a garden. What do you got to have to have a garden? You got to have water. And you got to have somebody to go out and work the ground. There's nobody to do that. And there's no water. And so... After presenting the problem, chapter 2, verse 6 goes on. Uh, but streams or, or a mist or rain clouds came up and watered the earth. God solves problem number one. Okay, now we, can, we, can, we have the first thing we need to have a garden. I'm putting a rain, a watering, a, an irrigation system in place. And then the Lord, part number two, problem number two, there was nobody to work the ground. Then the Lord God, Genesis 2, verse 7, formed a man from the dust of the ground. Okay. This is an amazing, amazing picture. This is God as a sculptor. You've got this ground. God wants to have a garden, the perfect place to put his creatures. There's two problems, no water, nobody to work it. God solves the water problem, waters the earth. The misty clouds come up and water the earth. And then God gets that earth. <laughs> I've been uh, seeing, we need one of these microphones that I don't have to hold. I need both my hands here. God takes that earth and he sculpts it. Okay. I'm not much of an artist myself. If I took clay, um, you know, I can make snakes. You, you roll it and uh, I can make pancakes. God sculpts a man out of the earth that he has formed and that he's put water on and he takes that and he sculpts a man and he breathes his life into that man and man becomes a living being. And then God dusts off his hands and he's done, right? Not if you've read Genesis. He planted a garden in the east in Eden. See, God's now working it out. He put the man that he had formed in that garden, and then he made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, good for food. They looked good in the middle of the garden. There were two trees. That's going to come into the later part of the Genesis story. And there were rivers flowing through it, and there was gold and precious stones. And then chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord said, you're free to eat from any tree 
you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because when you eat from that you will certainly die okay in the telling that we're given in genesis chapter 2 who was there to hear god's command don't eat from that know-it-all tree adam hey this is going to be important when we come back to paul and his letter who heard the command adam the man guys buckle up because we're going to be in trouble in a minute here don't eat from it when you eat you're for sure going to die and then the lord god said here we go another problem it's not good for the man to be alone. Okay? Not good. What happens when you leave guys alone? <laughs> they get into trouble, okay? Yeah. It's okay to laugh or cry. When you leave us guys alone, we get into trouble. It's not good for the man to be alone working this garden on his own. And so God says, I am going to make a helper for him. Now, this gets lots of churches and Christians in trouble. You read that word helper. What pops into your English-speaking American mind when women, you hear that you are helpers? assistant <laughs> assisting uh, hired help second class men are the boss women are helpers okay just can we lay that to rest because the helper words throughout the Bible everything in that word group both in the Old Testament and the Hebrew language, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek with the Septuagint, when the Gospels and the letters were written in the New Testament, the helper words most often, the vast majority of time, the helper words refer to God. Is God second rate? Is God just our assistant? Is God the hired help? God is our helper. Women, you have been granted, trusted, privileged with the role of being like God to help. Just as God is our helper, Psalm 117 says this, Isaiah 49, many other passages, God is our helper. The reality that God said, it's not good for men to be alone, and I'm going to make a suitable, a corresponding, exactly the right helper for these aimless men to be helped 
like God helps from a place of strength, from a place of power to help them live life, to help them order my world. God gives that to them. And specifically in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, we read more specifically, not only is God in general our helper, but the Holy Spirit is our helper. Okay, Let me go on a very slight rabbit trail, but I think it's important for our greater understanding. We're taught very specifically in the New Testament that in a Christian marriage, the husband is to be like Christ, like Jesus. Okay? Men, you better be sweating at that statement. You better not try that without the help of God. How many guys would be willing to say, oh, yeah, man, I have been so Christ-like this week, so much like Jesus, I love my wife. I gave myself for her. I would do anything for her. Okay. The husband is to be like Christ in the marriage. Okay. Now, if God is known as the helper, specifically the Holy Spirit is known as the helper, what does the wife represent in a Christian marriage then? Not the Son, Jesus, but the Holy Spirit. Yeah. We read throughout Jesus' life in the Gospel, he did not operate without the Holy Spirit. He's always taking action when the Holy Spirit reminds him. When the Holy Spirit gives him power. When the Holy Spirit moves him. Within a Christian marriage, a Christian household, women fill the role, are the representative of the Holy Spirit. See, where would I be without Joan, my Holy Spirit representative in my life? Lost, I can tell you. And that's the way it's to be in the household of God. Just as it is in the human household, that's the way it's to be in the household of God. We need men in God's household who are serving and sacrificing and loving and giving themselves like Christ gives gave himself, and we need women in the household of God who are like the Holy Spirit, reminding, even convicting, giving wisdom, bringing those essential elements of the work of God into the household of God. And the church in Ephesus had got it so wrong. The men were flexing their muscles, acting with anger and clenched fists and disputing. And Paul says, no, no, no. From Genesis, that's not the way it's supposed to be. I want men everywhere 
Open up your hands. Raise them up to God. Pray without anger and disputing. The women had said, hey, we will use our bodies and get attention and we will, we will make that a religious function like they do in the Ephesus temple where they worship Artemis. And Paul says, no, that's not the way. Women are to be like the Spirit, bringing peace and quietude. And we're all learning together from Christ. Familiar with Genesis chapter 3? What happens there? God makes things. It's very good. Chapter 2 describes it from a different perspective, saying God wants his world to be a certain way. He wants a garden. He wants it to be perfect. He needs rain. He brings that. He needs a human being. Not good for the man to be alone. I'm going to make him a helper like myself to help him through. And then along comes Genesis 3. <laughs> wah, wah. That was good. Do that. Okay. The wheels come off in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we read this. Actually, I'm going to start with chapter 2, verse 25, because this flows together in the narrative, the Hebrew narrative of Genesis. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals. Now what, what you've got here um, is you've got a play on words that doesn't come across in English. The closest I can come is this. The man and his wife were both nude, and the serpent was more shrewd. Okay? Two things are happening. In God's garden, things are going perfectly. There's no shame. There's no fear. There's no lording it over. There's no, hey, I know it all, you don't. There's none of that going on. Everything's going perfectly. And then the great deceiver comes in. Um, you know, when you think serpent, don't, don't just think snakes. Give me the heebie-jeebies. But don't just think snakes. Think more dragon-like. A serpentine dragon comes in and says, Did God really say? that you should not eat from any tree in the garden? <laughs> it's already going sideways, right? What had God said? Eat from any tree except this tree, the know-it-all tree. Don't eat from that tree. Okay. Serpent comes along. Did God say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The wheel's turning. Who speaks up? Genesis 3, verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, Oh, we, we may eat from any tree in the garden, but God did say, Don't eat 
from the tree that's in the middle of the garden or you will die. Don't even touch it. You know, maybe she's underlining the significance of the command. Maybe she's already adding to the command. What's interesting here, though, as you read this story, who was given the instruction? Adam. What's Adam doing? The serpent starts talking. Uh, men, you want to read a good book, women, too, challenging us on this, Larry Crabb's book, The Silence of Adam, because I guarantee, men, you and I have carried out this pattern since it happened on day whatever in the garden, but since sin entered the world. We get silent, we get passive, we get very un-Christ-like we let things run downhill you won't die the serpent said to the woman for God knows that when you eat from it your eyes will be opened you'll be like God knowing everything from good to evil eat from the know-it-all tree and you can know everything And to Eve, that sounds very reasonable. And so she reached out her hand. The tree, the fruit looked good to eat. The appeal of the misleading statements of the serpent sound good, and she ate it. Adam, he's often, wherever he is, he's not doing his job. And she gives it to him, and he says, oh, thanks. And he ate it too. And shame enters the world. And fear enters the world. And they go, oh my gosh, we don't have any clothes. We're going to hide in the trees. And God comes walking and says, Adam, where are you? Notice, who does he call to? Adam, where are you? Oh, Lord, we're over here in the trees. We were ashamed. We heard you walking in the garden. We were afraid and we were ashamed. And so we hid ourselves. We got these fig leaves and we covered ourselves up. Have you eaten from the tree? And Adam said, Yeah, Lord, I did. (laughs) The wife you gave me, Lord, she did it. (laughs) Okay. You see, the the oppression of women did not start with some kind of patriarchal. It started in the garden. Well, I, she did it. Now, she gets in on the game too, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Then the woman says, uh, God says, well, Eve, what have you done? 
And she says this, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so, the God, and so God, the Lord God, God Yahweh, the, the God who makes promises, the God who makes agreements, the God who is faithful to his people, says this, first of all, to the serpent. You're cursed above all the animals. And I'm going to put, I'm going to make you be an enemy with the woman. And between her offspring, her seed, and your offspring, Satan. But the seed, the child, the offspring of the woman will crush your head, even though you bite his heel it's the cross and then to the woman he said I'll make your pains in childbearing very severe with painful labor you will give birth to children does that come true has God spoken truly Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This appears not to be a good kind of ruling, but a dominating rule. And then to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit, the ground is cursed because of you. So much for this perfect garden. Painful toil, you will eat food all the days of your life. Nothing but thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. For the, from the ground you were taken, dust you are, and to dust you will return. I've been trying to plant a tree in our front yard. The ground is really hard. Anybody notice this around here? I mean, I've got this 15-pound bar with sharp edges on it. Keep your toes out of the way. and You know, you go down about a quarter of an inch at a time by the sweat of your brow. So Paul takes all of that. He gives a reminder of that story. And he says, here's how I want things to be in my household. I want to restore order. And so he, back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, 4. That's all of what we just covered. There's the rationale. Four. Adam was formed first, and then Eve. There's a sequence, right? Adam was made. It was not good for him to be alone. I'll make a corresponding helper like God, like God specifically, God the Holy Spirit, to be with the man that's needed in my household. It's necessary. That's what happened in the story. And Adam was not the one deceived. Now, 
don't read that having gone back and spent the majority of our time reviewing the Genesis story was necessary is Adam not being deceived an excuse for Adam and blame on Eve like Eve was the weak one in that story who knew better who had the direct words of God about the know-it-all tree Adam. Okay. So to say Adam was not deceived is the same thing as saying Adam sinned knowingly. Told you guys to buckle up. Adam knew what he was doing and did it anyway by standing by silently with his head in the clouds. The woman, his wife, she was deceived. Okay. Adam wasn't deceived. He has the greater responsibility in that. The woman was deceived. The serpent went after her, used all this logic, all this reasoning, all this persuasive speech, and Eve was misled. And then Paul says, it was the woman who was deceived, and careful how you read this, and became a sinner, as if who became a sinner, if you just read on the surface without reading Genesis and thinking, listening to the letter, what God says carefully, who fell into sin? Adam. Really, each of them, ultimately. Right? Okay. Don't read it. Okay, Adam, he was strong. He didn't get deceived. No, he knowingly sinned. The woman was misled by the, by the persuasive talk of the enemy. And each of them became a sinner. Can you understand then why it's important for Paul to be giving instructions for God's household how to get things back in order? You see, in Genesis, the woman was, if we can use our imagination a little bit, a little bit frantic. I don't know. Did, did God say? She got a little panicky. She got a little anxious. She wasn't, she wasn't learning in a heart of quietude. That's why Paul says, let women learn with quietude. The man wasn't leading. He had his head in the clouds, and that's why Paul says, I want the men to pay attention. Don't get reactive and angry and just go busting out open up your hands and ask God 
And then, referencing Genesis, passage nobody knows what to do with, when the elders discussed, by the way, we do that, just it's good for you to know. We sit around every other Thursday night, and more than business, more than decision-making, we're taking the scriptures for the coming Sunday or for a couple of Sundays out, and we're we're trying to understand them together and and understanding this and and so the other elders looked at me and said what are you going to do with this passage why you know um in the history of the world have any women died during childbirth okay so that can't be what it's saying you know all women will be protected through all childbirths but you see Paul uses singulars here too many of our English translations use plural women no the woman so who are we talking about who we've been talking about all along Eve right Eve became an experiencer of salvation by right the seed the offspring, the child of the woman, would be an enemy of the child of the serpent. And who's going to win? Right? It also does not say children bearing, like many children are in view here. It's a singular child bearing. When that child came, before long, before you know it, will be up to Advent remembering the coming of Jesus, anticipating the coming of Jesus through that childbirth. Salvation is experienced. And then for the very last phrase, Paul switches to the plural. Who gets saved through that childbirth? Everybody in God's household. If they remain in faith, which leads to love, which leads to holiness, and all of that is practiced. I like this better than self-control is just too confusing. Like, wait, we just said God is doing everything, and now I got to somehow be a better manager of my life. Through that childbirth of salvation, it begins with faith. Faith leads to love. Love leads to holiness and all that is practiced, not merely with self-control, but with wise, moderate, sensible, thoughtful awareness. This one, I wish we were German. Germans can string a whole bunch of words together and make a new word. We have to put, I don't know, put hyphens between all of that. Living with wise, moderate, sensible, thoughtful awareness. And so let me bring it back to us before we come to sing in prayer and worship to God, to eat from the supper that Jesus prepared for us. 
What does that mean for us? Not looking down on one another. Not thinking ourselves in some way superior. Not living in frantic response and reaction with our whims. Not standing by silent, remembering the instructions of God. Building and supporting each other with love. Doing the work that God gave us to do to keep his world, his household, an orderly place. Let us work together, not alone, to do the work of God. And let us open up our distressed and angry hands to receive the peace of God and to seek him for his help and wisdom. Father, there is so much here. We could have read your word from those first few pages to the last pages of our Bible. But Lord, we took enough time, and we don't have time to comprehend all of that. But please, Lord, let us not protect us from reading words from your word in isolation, from reading them merely through our own opinions and perspectives, for protect us from reading them through what our contemporary world tells us to read. But let us see all of this in light of all of your work in your son, Jesus, who is the one who came, crushed the enemy, opened up a new life for us, so that it is true what Paul wrote in his letter to the church at Galatia early in his work, that in your son Christ Jesus, there's not a hierarchy. There's not a racial hierarchy of Jews and Gentiles. There's not a power and economic hierarchy between slaves and masters. There's not a gender hierarchy between male and female. But that we all, as we were created to be, women and men are your children, your image, doing your work in this world until Jesus comes.